Serious TV Drama Podcast. I'm Scott, and joining me once again this week, the preemptory challenge to my empty chalice. Wait, who wrote this? What the hell does that mean? Anyway, here's Brian. Hey, Brian. Hey, Scott. Happy birthday. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> I figured you'd wait till the end. Yes, I am. Yay, I'm so happy I'm recording a podcast on my birthday. It's so special. <laughs> no, but thank you. Um, but what we're doing tonight is not going to be about my birthday. It's about a bunch of things. Um, we're going to be doing stuff which is about stuff we've watched this week and a prelude to what we're going to be doing next week. Obviously, as you all know, first on the docket for tonight will be Chapter 11 of Perry Mason. And after Perry Mason is adjourned for the night, we will meet in our little podcast chambers here to chat just a little bit about a series that will be will be getting the weekly coverage treatment starting next week. And that would be the series Succession. Nothing too heavily in-depth, just our thoughts on the series overall and where we were left hanging at the end of Season 3 back, which was almost 15 months ago, I believe. But first, <laughs> we would be morally bankrupt indeed if we didn't go chapter 11, see what I did there, <laughs> of Perry Mason. So let's start with that now. Um, did you think it was interesting that like the opening scene or scenes, if you, I guess because it's a succession uh, a sequence, really, it's it's basically it's Holcomb's rituals in the morning about how he how he finishes up at the I guess the gambling boat and you know in the wee hours of the morning or it's already daylight and he changes his clothes and the trunk of the car and so and and everything all the way through to his home life. I I I, I thought it was interesting because to a large extent there's that's not plot but it's just telling it's informing us in an interesting way about this character how you know there, there's a certain almost charmingly mundane nature to it. Like, the, you know, everything, even yelling at the guy to get out of his bottle, his cans and bottles, whatever, which which is the opposite of me, because I tell them, no, take it all away, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, I, I like that uh, you see Holcomb is basically telling his wife, like, they want to get the money and get out of there. Like, they, they want to go somewhere else, and he wants to improve his life. You see him, you know, have a moment where, he, you know, talks about his kids and to his kids. Uh, you sort of see him take the, the, you know, disguise of villain off and put on the uniform of, you know, good husband and and good father, uh, which I think is is the, you know, comment that most that that's really what evil is. It's not somebody evil 100 percent of the time. And and I think it's where a lot of great drama is, is that sometimes evil is really rather um, non-imposing and, and not super scary and not done by the worst people in the world. But Holcomb can be imposing and can be menacing and be those things and still have this other side, this duality of him, which interestingly enough, you know, we see the, the two sides of our, you know, the characters we're supposed to pull for here, uh, you know. Right, I, I, I something I'll talk about later with Perry, but right, um, it 
to 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 um piggyback on that i i think it's um I, I, I don't disagree with any of that. I, I, I like the idea that what they're doing is um, they're humanizing him. He's not just a stock character who's just set up as the, you know, the one or barely two dimensional, you know, antagonist slash villain slash typical nemesis of Perry, you know, on, on, the, on the lower scale of class. Um, it's an interesting thing because in a weird way, that's something he kind of shares with uh, a lot of our protagonists who are, you know, they're not the exceptionally well-to-do or well-off folk. You know, they have they have their issues. They have their financial issues, even, to a certain extent. Um, it's the American dream. It's people are trying, are start, people are striving to succeed in, in different ways. Um, we may not agree with what he's doing because he is at, at the heart of it. He's a, as, as far as work is concerned, what he does for a living, he's corrupt. But as far as the life he leads outside of it, he tries not to be from what we've seen. So just showing and what I like about that. And we've said that about any number of shows we've watched over the years. The most interesting characters are the characters that aren't purely black or white. The characters that have certain shadings of gray, especially when it comes to villains. The villains, the most interesting villains with, with a few exceptions, of course, are usually the ones where you can understand their motivation of what they're doing. If there's, I'm not saying they necessarily have to be relatable, but at least they have to be understandable. Unless it's unless it's a villain that's so highly chaotic that it transcends that. So we're not talking about you know Heath Ledger's Joker, for example. But you do, for example, understand uh, Gus Fring on Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul because we know from whence he came and we know how that started and how he started and where he ended up. So right. Again, what I liked about this, again, short strokes, we got it. It's like, oh, very interesting. And also, I liked it because, you know what? I was not expecting that. So I appreciated the fact that they took the time. And it wasn't that much time. It was only like maybe two minutes. I don't know. Oh, I also, and just because, you know, just to keep my geeky, unfortunate credentials going, I I like noticing the fact that the woman playing his wife, um, the dorkier among us will recognize her as the actress who played Lila uh, throughout the Arrowverse shows, like Arrow and Flash, whatever. Um, that actress, her name is Audrey Marie Anderson. And I, I actually paused the screen. I just stared like, is that is that the one from from Arrow? And I just quickly IMDb, like, oh, that is her. I never knew her name until now. Okay, move on. All right, speaking of moving on, let's move on to court. And we have this, we have the pre-trial arguments. And I'm thinking when someone like you is watching, it's like, well, that's not how I would handle that. Um, and, and, I, and I would say, it's not 1933 either, dude. Um, the arguments are dealing with issues such as, you know, whether having enough time to prepare and things like preemptory juror challenges because they have two defendants as opposed to one. Um, putting the, the slight, the very slight plotting element aside, because I have no idea if we're even going to see the jury challenges take place on the, on the show or not. Cause sometimes they'll do that. Sometimes they just skip past that. Don't know. Um, I like, again, not like the Holcomb scene so much. I like just getting a little taste of these different characters and what their, um, not just what their functions are, but how, how they may be proceeding. I mean, it's, it's interesting watching Perry at work and Della's, you know, at his side, just basically flip, flipping through the law books for the precedents, whatever. I, I, I kind of, I kind of like that because that's, that is the kind of teamwork that I have seen when you're watching a legal drama where it's not just the one 
um, the one attorney. It's not. It's not just. It's not just. I'm going to use his name again t- twice in three three weeks. It's not just Frank Galvin taking on the world here. You know, they're they're very much. They're, there's a pair here. Even if she can't practice law as of yet, she can certainly more than ably assist as she clearly does here. But we already know that. So I, I don't. Not not to cut the not to cut your knees out from under here, Brian. But I don't need I don't necessarily need to go into the Della Perry thing because I feel like this is something we've already we already saw previous to this. And the same with the way the way Milligan is acting. We've already seen the way he is already. It's just a reminder, like, oh yeah, you're you're basically gonna be a bit of a creep, you're gonna kinda of stir up the sentiment. But but to be honest, that's what someone in that position is going to do. It doesn't necessarily make him like a bad person. We might not like it. It may be, you know, you know, stoking the fires uh, as you will, but especially for that time, that's what you're going to do. What I thought was interesting in the scene and how it carries over to one of my, what may be one of my two favorite scenes in the entire episode. It's about the judge. And this is our introduction to a character. Then we realize, Oh, this might be the guy who's going to be presiding over this entire case. He's he's going to be a character. Prop me, pass. I didn't look it up, but he might be a character for the rest of the series. And I think between his interactions with with both lawyers here, and then the the what I think the marvelous scene between uh, the judge and Perry Mason later on in the episode, I, I felt that was a key. That to me, that was the key to that scene because we got to see how the judge is going to react to both of them. And it's not going to be completely slanted one way or the other, which we might've thought could possibly be the case considering the time period, considering what we've seen from other judges before this. I thought I I, I could see there's a certain toleration level he's going to have or not have, but he's also going to, if the other guy does something wrong, he's going to, he's going to bang him for it too. That's the way I took it. Yeah, and and there's also, I mean, in the legal field, there there are two types of motions you file. Those you're entitled to, and the smart, good judges let you win those because there's black letter law on those, and it's usually reversible error if they don't follow that rule. Uh, and then there are what we call jump balls. That that's when judges get to exercise judicial discretion. And unless they abuse that discretion in some gross manner, usually they're not overturned. And I think the first decision is, you know, one of those jump balls. Uh, The second one, Perry cleverly, you know, paints the judge in a corner and even even sets out. Well, this means they get more, too. Um, So, so, I mean, it's he he won one. And if you were going to do what he did, you would want to end in that courtroom winning right so that the last thing everybody sees before the people run out and do the story or whatever you don't want to walk out after you just got your ass kicked right and also while i am absolving the series or the an episode or any, everything else of anything that you know approximates a been there done that cliche kind of thing i will also say at the same time i can't remember the last time i watched any legal drama, whatever, where the, the the people that we're rooting for, when they're asking for a continuance, they never get it. They never get it. They never get an extension of time. They never get it. They just don't because you. It's it's you know what? 
it's dr- it's dramatic writing 101. It's like, no, 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 no. I'm not going to give you more time because, you know, the fact that there's, you don't have enough time is what creates the drama. So you'll, no, there's, I knew there was no way. I don't care if they quoted 20 precedents. I, lo- I also love the way the judge reacted to certain things, especially when he referred to other judges. And, and it's also interesting when you're dealing with, you know, uh, a storyline is taking place in, again, this is 1933, and I love that I know exactly what year it is. Um, and I only know that because of something else that happens in the episode, and I can't wait to get to that. Um, but the fact that it's, it's so long ago that the judges c- can all be aware of these other judges who did precedence. They might even know them. And even, and it's funny that some of them might actually be historically important people or, or whatever. It's like later when you realize that, oh my God, he was practicing in the 19th century. Yeah. That's, that's it. That's how long ago this was when, when LA was just starting. I, I again, we'll get there soon, but I just love that scene so much. No, I, I love the world building that part of, part of the underbelly of this whole story this season is that this is this is what LA is becoming out of what it was, and right. we see vestiges of both. Well, the the, the fascinating thing with the whole LA thing, um, and and then I'm I can't help but point out where I think the DNA strands are here from, but it's the it's the constant knowledge and the comments that we've heard in previous episodes of and and being aware that. The LA, this is this is the early goings of of LA becoming a, a full fledged metropolis city, you know. Right. It, it, this was, you know, it's it's the West Coast, you know. So obviously everything in California is post gold rush and everything, and then when people started to migrate, they were going to start to become a city, and you, got, you know, certain people, certain cultures, and people that were there already, so on and so forth. So it doesn't have the history of like the East Coast of the United States or the or the original colonies or anything like that. So it's the beginning of everything and how when you begin, it's not just the building of a city and the and society and the laws, but it's also how the corruption and the things that are wrong are also baked into society as well. And that's why when I think about this, and this is, again, the, the 30s, the, I always say, well, you know, you, you're going to see a little Chinatown here. And there's a little, you know, every once in a while you say, okay, there's a little bit of Chinatown. Because remember that. Chinatown, Chinatown doesn't take my Chinatown. The movie came out in the seventies, but it doesn't take place in the seventies. You know, right, right. Well, you, you see, basically, the uh, I mean, it's the architecture of a of a city, all of it coming together. You know, the right. social structure and and I think something I like that I n- never really thought about that makes a lot of sense is you see various times. I think that judge reflected it in this episode but we've seen it in previous episodes is that a lot of the prominent people have a chip on their shoulder that, that it's not considered, you know, um, a rival of some of the other big cities that LA is an up and comer with a chip on its shoulder. Right. It's, it's, it's people who landed there. It's still, you know, Hollywood is just starting to become a thing, you know, but, but it's not, it hasn't, hasn't reached that, hasn't quite reached that level, but it's getting there because it is the early thirties. We're in, we're in the era of talkies now at this point, you know, we're dealing with other rich people, but they're rich people. A lot of it's based on oil and things that you don't necessarily associate with, with that region as much, as much as other things and whatever. I, I, and that's why you had that. We talked about it in a previous podcast, um, I love that line that Hamilton Berger had when he was, ta- when he was talking literally about um, the courthouse and how it was the whole idea that you make a building that is made to look as though it was built, you know, hundreds of years ago, and yet it was only built, you know, you know, a year and a half ago or whatever the heck it was, or a few couple years ago. All right, let, let, let's 
move, let's continue to move forward through the episode just to hit on a couple little things as we, you know, as we move, as we move forward. Wow. I learned how to speak English today. Um, I like just little, let me get this, these little dabs with different characters and storylines. You know, for example, we'll see Drake at home and that's where you get the, that's, and you get the sense of, well, two things. I like the idea that it's the thirties and, you know, what's, it's kind of like what's old is new, what's old is new and, and so on and so forth because people are listening to the radio and they're saying horrible, things it's like oh it's like the rush limba of 1933 kind of situation and and people who are listening to it it what and what that audience how you get an audience like that is they're already mad about something and so they get you're going to tune into something which is just going to make you more pissed off even if it doesn't really connect to what has anything to do with what what you're actually mad about but that's what you're attracted to and on the radio they're going off about the um uh, literally about the the Gallardo brothers and immigration because of the death of Brooks McCutcheon or whatever. But meanwhile, the reason why Drake's um, it's his is it his brother or brother in law? I keep forgetting that family. Whatever you know, what? forgive us for not for. You know, I think it's his brother, but I could be wrong about that. It might be her brother. But the whole point was the fact of the guy that Drake unintentionally ended up helping send to prison or jail, whatever, Perkins, and how much of an impact that's had on that community. Because either that man had whatever level of corruption himself, um, kind of you know, kind of like that Shades of Grey thing we were talking about with Holcomb, he did so much positive for that community and made sure that they, that they, you know, that those trucks would show up in certain spots to pick up guys for, to, to, to work in different, in different places. And without that, without Perkins there, those trucks aren't showing up anymore. And suddenly people are, are having long stretches of being out of work. And, and, and when you're out of work for a while, you start to get pissed off. Right. I mean, the, the local Robin Hood has been put out of business and, and because of that, that there's no work. And it, and it is, as we talked earlier about this architecture of the city, uh, you know, cities are complicated things. And, and an unintended consequence of removing somebody like that is it affects a whole broad category of people. Right. Exactly. So, again, like I said, character dabs. We, we get a little bit of with, with, with Della and Anita. By the way, now we get the uh, – I think it's the first time it said in an episode – that confirms that she's actually a screenwriter. We we knew it from watching the behind the scenes from after one of the ep- which they didn't have after this episode. I noticed um, that she was based on an actual screenwriter from that era. So, but when she's talking, we realize, oh, she's a she's a screenwriter. I only have one question. It has nothing to do with that scene because I don't think there's really that much interesting to talk about with that scene, quite frankly. Um, and this is a dumb question. It's just basically I don't remember. You know, every, a lot of my questions could be I don't remember. Brian, remind me. And it's a silly question, but I just, I'm curious. Does Perry know about Della? I I don't think he does. I don't think so. I'm not I saying it would matter, but I'm just curious because, especially, you know, it's interesting. I'm just wondering. I I, I, I don't think so, um, but I I think he has suspicions. Okay. Just and again, I, I'm not saying it's an, it's it, it's not an important point, but it's a curious point, especially because we are talking about something that takes place in 1933, and people's sensibilities might be a little bit different than than they would be even you know 40, 50 years later. If not more. I'd, I'd go so far as to say he probably. Do, I mean, I would guess he doesn't know about Hamilton Burger, um, the full extent either. 
I suspect that may be true as well. And we'll see. I mean, there could be a moment in a, in a future episode where one or both of these things does come to light, at least in his eyes, and we, we see how he reacts to that. It'll be interesting because sometimes you have a character on a, on a television series and you just think and assume they're going to act in, in a certain way, especially if you consider them to essentially be the protagonist of the show. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, they didn't quite do what you, what you thought they were going to do or act, react the way you thought they were going to react. Um, I want, I'm, so there's, there's a little part of me that's a little curious if they would dare to do that with Perry Mason or not. They probably won't, but I'm curious. And I know you're thinking of something else. Do not say it because you're going to ruin another point I want to bring up <laughs> shortly. <laughs> but, but yes, I am thinking of that as well. Anyway, <laughs> so let, let's, let's skip over to, to um, to jail, where you got the Gallardo brothers and the horrible treatment they're getting in prison. You know, there's, they're literally finding pieces of glass in their food. Um, and Perry goes to see them because at this point, Perry really hasn't had a chance to really talk to them in depth at all. And I, he actually just wants to get to know who they are beyond the, the facts of the case and the situations, like them denying that they, it's, it's even conceivable they could have uh, touch that car, so there cannot possibly be a fingerprint on that car, um, according to them, at least. But um, I, I did think it was kind of interesting, and just just Perry just getting basic background on them. And what I thought was the most interesting was um, them telling their life story, and it may not be exactly what you were expecting it to be. And the fact that they, you know, they're, they're making the point that they've always been here. You know, it's it's not like they they didn't they didn't they didn't they didn't sneak over the border, you know, a, a couple of years ago, and, and and whatever other horrible kind of um, narrative the 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 opposition is probably trying to foment there. Um, it, so it's kind of interesting because once again, what I said before, it's the whole American dream thing, and it's like all these people and their and their way and their ways of striving and what they're dealing with, and it's the constant reminder, especially with the Hoovervilles and everything, that we're. St- you're dealing with a country that's still dealing with the depression. The depression, depression hadn't, you know, depression was still a thing. There's still Hooverville. It's still a thing, you know? Yeah, and Perry really stands in as a proxy for the viewer um, because, I, I mean, I'll be honest with you. When they told their story, uh, I kind of was like, hey, I, I, I was a little guilty of that, too, in, in this. That, that, you know, them saying, hey, I, I've been here. Um, and I think that you know, when he caught himself thinking that it was a, a an insight to him uh, and probably further reinforced his idealism in taking the case. Right. Absolutely. Because it only goes to show that, you know, you know, unfortunately, sometimes perception is reality. But when you when you strip that away, it's like, oh, the people are more alike than you actually realize. So that takes me to the. <laughs> Yay, takes me to what one of my two favorite scenes in the entire episode um, that I've already alluded to a few times already, and that's when Perry goes to see the judge. Um, I, I my note my my only note I wrote is you know other than uh, he's reading the Good Earth, but his favorite scene so far by far. I love the scene between Perry and the judge. I love that they gave the judge that much. Uh, they made him a much more interesting character than I was anticipating, and I really, really appreciated that. Um, and I and I loved. We've gotten a number of scenes 
over the last few episodes. And, and coincidentally or not, those tend to be my favorite scenes so far in, in this show. So, um, this season where you have two characters, uh, either debating or bantering back and forth, you know, and it's, it's very much about the idea of, of things like justice about, or, or the way things are compared to the th- way things were or the way things, the way people want them to be. What's reality? What's illusion? And so on. I, l- and the fact that there's so many, um, hackneyed ways this scene could have went. And I was so pleased it didn't go down that path. It didn't, it didn't go down the way, which I was really kind of getting worried about. And they didn't go there. I was very happy about that. I, I really, um, appreciated the, the, the repartee between them and the fact that we talk, you just mentioned, uh, Perry's idealism. And that's something the judge sees as well. And, and he, he's, he's, I love, it's another cynic. It's another cynic on the show because he's cynical enough to, to say that he's seen a lot of idealists come and go and, you know, they get crushed. But, you know, he still admires it, even though I think he, he uses a line which I was like, oh, I would have written that. It's, exactly right. it's like, isn't it exhausting? <laughs> you know, yeah. you know? I, I just love the scene so much. Well, they, they could have made the judge one dimensional and just be a, a foil. Um, but I think what they did successfully with this scene was set him up as, as you might not like him, but you don't hate him. Uh, that that in, you know he may make some very political rulings, but this peek into his chambers gave you a sense that he was a pragmatist, a realist, um, and there was some understanding in him. Uh, and he communicated with Perry uh, on a human level. And I, I, I like the line, and I wonder if we'll see it used later, uh, because it's very true, is that he says uh, literature is, you know, is theatrical for the profession. Um, that, you know, if you're going to be a courtroom lawyer, you need to read literature and you need to learn the theatrics because a lot of courtroom uh, stuff is theatrical. Oh, yeah. And, and, and again, you, you're also talking about something when I love the idea of just even mentioning the idea of theatrics with a lawyer. Cause obviously, number one, you're not, you're, you, if you're reading a book or watching a TV show or a movie about lawyers, you're expecting there to be some theatricality in the first place. Uh, you know, and is, and quite, and anyone who knows the legend of Ferry Mason, you know, over the last, you know, 70, 80 years, possibly the most theatrical lawyer of all time who, who makes people, you know, give it up on the witness stand and stuff. Um, but it's also that talking about theatricality. And again, this is LA. This is the land. This is the land where dreams are, you know, dreams are made into reality with, mo- you know, this beginning of the movie industry and everything else. You know, you're not going to get a place that, that that's more about theatricality, quite frankly, than Los Angeles outside of maybe Broadway in New York City, you know? So I really, I, I really just enjoyed that, that, the whole thing. And the thing I also like about it is kind of uh, going along with what we saw in the earlier scene. They're doing one, they're doing something which can go one of two ways. They're either A, making it clear that, okay, you're not necessarily going to be able to predict which way this judge is going to go throughout the course of this case. Cause it seems like he's going to treat things. As fair as you would think someone would at this point in time, at his age, at everything else, you know, whatever. 
does that mean there's a possibility it might things might not go awry and you know maybe maybe there'll be a sudden reveal that he's corrupt or something it's certainly possible i doubt it but it's possible especially with that dude's father lurking everywhere but it just it it made it it just made it a very interesting um thing to be watching for as we move forward through throughout the series i think yeah yeah i I really like the way they handled the the, and then like it was one of my favorite scenes yeah. Speaking of scenes that I didn't expect to like that much, and I did, um, shortly after that, we have this little meeting with uh, Perry and Della going to see uh, Camilla Nygaard and her attorney. Um, it's uh, the actor uh, Wallace. Uh, I forget his last name. People know him from things like uh, a bunch of sitcoms like uh, that we've seen, as well as um, he's on one of the CSI shows, I think, if I'm not mistaken. I love this character's name, though. I, I just love a little touch of that. He's an attorney. His name is Melville Phipps. That, that, it, that's just a, it's, I'm sorry. It's a perfect name. <laughs> it's just, it's a perfect name. It's like, you need, I need an, I need a name for a 1930s attorney. Uh, Melville Phipps. There you go. That's it. <laughs> I, um, again, I'm really much more enjoying Hope Davis on this than her rather <laughs> irksome character on, on your honor, especially after especially the way that show ended. I really enjoyed the, I'm going to use the word twice today, I apologize, uh, the, the repartee between uh, Camilla and, and Perry, actually, uh, which which we hadn't seen before because those characters hadn't met before. Um, um, and then you have that little turn, and the turn is the reaction to when he brings up uh, Sandhaven, uh, which was a facility that we actually saw Perry calling earlier in the episode. And then we learned that was... The reason why I was calling it, that was the number on that mysterious slip of paper they found in evidence. So, you know, some, someone is guiding him here. Someone is trying to lead, lead this on the way, you know, and then, which is interesting because now that we know that's what that slip of paper was, whatever, to me, that seems to, okay, anything I had that that might have been the, the father had something to do with that now makes no sense whatsoever. Because if, as we see later on, he would be the last person who'd want to to like expose that that what what we're going to see with that. And it turned out to, uh, a, a woman who's named uh, Noreen Lawson, who's in Sandhaven, and we don't know what that story is yet. But don't you suspect that maybe she was uh, um, strangled with a belt, and maybe <laughs> um, maybe got brain damage? Yeah. That's ver- that's entirely possible. But but it is it, it, it makes does perfect set it sense. up that that you don't know now if that is you know a red flag a MacGuffin or something Perry was sent on to chase down to think it means something and it means something else or if it you know it, if it's the dad it's to lead him in a direction away that that could damage him I, I agree with you I, I don't think it is I think I think it was a turn that that probably is what is the inciting action for really the dad going off the deep end when that stuff comes out. Yeah. I mean, unless they really have uh, worked out a a much more naughty script than I'm expecting right now, the dad should be the last one who would want to be sending him on on that journey. Cause that's, that's the one thing he doesn't want as he makes very clear later on in the episode when they encounter each other at the racetrack. Um, But I, I I'm I'm enjoying the again I repeating myself as I do I'm enjoying the convolutions and these little details that start to crop up when you're going okay what what is this about like okay you know what it's all gonna fit together 
And it just shows, it's all about secrets coming out, especially family secrets, you know, whether it's, you know, the stuff, the secrets of Brooks McCutcheon or whether it's something beyond that. I think you're, uh, belief that it might be someone that he had um, strangled and was left in that s- state. That is a very, very good uh, assumption on your part. I hadn't thought of that. I think that's pretty, I, I kind of like that because then that also feeds to the very first time we met Brooks McCutcheon and why we saw that and why we, and why does that reference to seeing that belt, uh, that second belt later on. So they keep that dropping breadcrumbs. So I, I think you're, I think you might be hands on gratifying this shit right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I like, I like in the scene you referred to it uh, that I'll just touch on briefly is I, I like that, that, Perry has a way of communicating with all of these people that are powerful that at some point is annoying uh-huh. and turns them off. So she starts communicating with Della because Della knows how to communicate in, right. in this crowd. Right. And, and she is expressly invited, you know, to the next uh, function and, and Perry is, is ushered out rather it's because it's because outside of what he de- what he his background is being essentially acting as a PI where you're not you're, you do have to, you have to lie at times whatever, but the difference between Perry excuse me one of the differences obviously there's a number one of the differences between Perry and Della, um, and I mean no offense to Della but Perry is not about pretense. Della has had to, as you, you use a phrase earlier about wearing a mask, Della's had to wear a mask and be, and be able to, to fit into these worlds, whatever, because of who she is and what she is, whatever. That's not Parrot. That's not what he would do. You know, like, unless he's, do, unless he's doing like PI work and he's trying to lie his way into a thing, like, which, which we actually see him do in, in, in a subsequent scene where he's trying to see loss and whatever, because that's just what he would do. Um, but that's, that, that's fine. That's, that's all, that could, that could be Saul Goodman for all we care, you know, but, right. but Della, has to more seamlessly move in the in these worlds at times and you know because obviously she carries herself a certain way and she looks a certain way but she can't let people you know know that she is a certain way and the fact that she's become friends with and has attached herself to hamilton burger probably also helps her be someone who can be in those worlds because she's hanging out with someone who's already you know who hangs out with the elite i don't know if della street would be hanging out with those sort of folks if she hadn't, or if she didn't have the Hamilton Burger connection. Because I don't, I don't get the impression that she comes from, you know, she's, she's she comes from means herself, you know, because you know, we just haven't seen it, right, right. But but I think it's it's useful. She uses it as a tool, whereas Perry is unable to access that part of himself. That that uh, as they go on, Perry will need her access. I I agree. I just. I, I, I would almost not like Perry as much if he wasn't being the way he was there. I think he, Agreed. I think for him, for his character and for his own, the fiber of his being, he needs to be that way. He has to be, he has to be the, at times, the strident righteous one or who's going to crack that thing. He, he, he wears his cynicism and his annoyance with people like that on his sleeve. That's, who he is, and that—that's yes. that, the character that he is. Agreed. So the fact that Della's with him there, she's there to kind of like, kind of smooth that out and kind of you know c- cover those spots. I, I I really enjoy, like I said, I really enjoyed that whole little scene um, much more unexpectedly than I than I thought. So shortly after that, and after the scene at the at Sandhaven, um, we're gonna get the scene where we actually get our our, our three together. 
we get our Perry Mason, we get our Della Street, and we get our Paul Drake. And <laughs> oh, by the way, uh, it occurred to me this is how dorky I am. I'm going to waste time on the podcast. I apologize, Brian. So his name is Perry Mason, and her name is Della Street. Perry Della P. D. So Paul Drake, his name is P. D. So he's got, he's kind of like the in between there, taking their two initials, and you get his name. All right, it's retarded. All right, so let's move on. I I I love the idea that you have Perry and Paul um, going on about his theory. About, you know, and it's all tying into Hulk and whatever. And Della essentially throwing cold water on it. I love that they, they call her a wet blanket and whatever, because he doesn't have the proof for it, obviously, whatever. But I, I, I really enjoy the interacting between them because they're talking about serious matters, but there is humor here as well. And I, I always like there to be a reminder, like, no, no, there, there can be a, even in, Case dark cases like these, and dark and a show and a series which is going to have a lot of dark moments. And we're going to have one uh, a little bit later in this episode, but you can also have moments of lightness and about and about how these three are, are interacting with each other. So I, I really kind of like that. Yeah, and, and I like seeing all of them not talking about the personal relationships, but talking about a case mm-hmm. and and actually doing the work. Um, and then, you know, they all get to, Paul really gets to doing the work shortly after this. Right. Oh, I also, I'm only, I'll, I'll spend 10 seconds here. I also want to say Perry's theories about Holcomb once again, make me want to revise my thinking about who had that gold coin in the beginning of that very first thing. Cause like now I'm like, oh wait, now maybe it was Holcomb. Cause then, all right, <laughs> I'll keep moving on. Um, speaking of nice moments and, or unexpected nice moments, well, and you just put it in there just to, just so we remind it, okay, it's not all horrible for them. It's a horrible situation, but at least they have each other. And I'm talking about the brothers in, in prison right now, where we get a scene where it's, it's just, it's a little nice between them. You know, they're playing, they're, you know, they're playing games. They're kind of, you know, riffing on each other. It, I liked it. It's kind of like showing the scene with Holcomb in the beginning that characters that we might normally only see one way. We see these other moments that we don't ne- you don't necessarily have to show us, but it's just giving us some more facets. Much like the the background that Perry got about them in an earlier scene, this is a moment where we see you know oh look they can even in this in this horrible circumstance they can still have a moment of you know family friendship love niceness here, which I, I was again was not expecting, and which is why I like that little moment. It could have that easily could have been cut out. And I'm glad they didn't. No, but it sees the one brother taking care of the other brother when he's starting to spin out of control. Right. And he sort of gets him back on and, and, you know, gets his mental health back to where it needs to be. Right. So shortly after that, I think we have that scene where Drake goes to Hooverville. And you've got things like him encountering these kids who are shooting rats, um, which which also led to a very strange closing credit gag of of, of, of someone taking shots at different rats on screen. It was very yeah. It was, that might have been the weirdest thing I've seen on this series so far. Um, but the, the 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 idea that they come up with here that I was not quite expecting was not that there was a gun dealer exactly. It was a gun rental service. <laughs> and I was like, 
That's, I don't know that I've seen that before. I love the originality of that. If, and if it has been done, I, I just haven't seen it. That's all. Um, I, I just, I, I love that idea, but I will, but I will say, um, cause then later we see, um, him going, and I knew what he was doing almost instantly. It's like, oh, he's getting phone books. Oh, this is going to be about him doing ballistic tests. He has to shoot through something and it's got to be something dense enough to hold the bullet. So that's why he can't do it. Like, uh, the only other thing I was like, well, if, what, it's, it's easier to get a bunch of phone books than a couple mattresses, I guess. Um, but him going through all the trouble of like wetting down the, all the, all the phone books and stuff like that and then going out. And, did you think that he was going to end up matching the ballistics? Cause I, I had a bad feeling they were going to match it up and it was going to really screw those guys. And that's As it went on, I had the feeling it would. Yes. Uh, but I was interested to see where it was going initially, but about halfway through my feelings started to turn mm-hmm. that he was going to. And that's, that's what I believe the, the idea of Paul Drake is he's not idealistic in finding the truth. He, he goes out to find it, whatever it is. He doesn't bend it to fit what he thinks it is in the same way that I think he had a huge blind spot when he set up Perkins. Right. If somebody gives him a task, like go do this thing, he goes out and does that thing and whatever it brings back or shows, he, he gets that and doesn't run it through his own filter to skew it one way or another. Exactly. I mean, it, Basically, he's doing, although he may be working on behalf of the the defense, so to speak, um, but he doesn't let that sway. He is he he's a tr- he's a truth seeker, and because right. they're going to need to they need to know the truth one way or the other. They're not trying to screw around with the case themselves. So I really enjoyed all that. I thought that was great. And now let me go to um, another thing I wasn't quite expecting, but I shouldn't I shouldn't say I wasn't expecting it. Um, it is nice when we can spend a, at least a little bit of time in the episode on something which isn't specifically about the case. And what I'm referring to is Perry and his ex-wife, Linda, and his son, Teddy. And it took me a minute to remember, oh, yeah, Gretchen Mall is his wife. And remember when Gretchen Mall was a much bigger deal? Um, so, yeah, apparently his son has to uh, – it, it's an impromptu stay at his house. And the kid who we see is a, he's a smart kid and he's a nice kid, whatever. Um, not quite what he wanted to do though, whatever, even though Perry tries to be the good dad, he's, he's set up a tent for him and he's bought him a present and whatever, but he, but the kid is the more, resp- the more responsible one wanting to do homework. And, and I, 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 you know, I love the fact that they're both doing the work at the same time. And then the kid starts bringing up Latin and Perry obviously, you know, there's all these phrases we all know in, in the legal profession that are Latin. So, but then when the kid goes through all, like all the different tenses, and he starts talking about you know the past perfect and the future, and you can see you can just see it glazes over Perry's eyes and says, "Hey, you want to go see a movie?" <laughs> and here's what I wanted to say about that: the movie and this that moment. It's brief as heck. Just gotta point this out because I'm Scott. I have to. Perry Mason. And his son, who he doesn't have, he, he, he wants to have a better relationship with his son. He probably doesn't have quite the one he'd like to because he's not, hasn't really been as much of a part of his life as he should have been. And in a way of connecting, they end up going to see a movie, and that movie is King Kong. Hey, I used to watch another period show, one of the best shows of all time, 
except it took place about 30 to 35 years later than this. And there's a scene where her father is trying to connect with his son, who he's been kind of distant, hasn't really been had much of a relationship with. And then they eventually just say, okay, let's go see a movie. And that movie was Planet of the Apes. Interesting. <laughs> you know? <laughs> that, that, I mean, one can tell me it's a coincidence. And maybe it is, but it's it's a weird coincidence that in both these instances, and they're both movies that it's probably the two most famous movies about apes of all time. It's, I don't know why, but I but it's the, I couldn't help but think it. I was like going, oh look at that, ah interesting. The the thought I had watching that was looking at the moviegoers, and to our modern sensibility, watching that now it seems ridiculous. Uh, because of all the advances in stop motion, you know, CGI, but to people in the movie theater, then, I mean, it was, it was amazing. It was like a huge deal and reflecting back to that time. to They all have looks of amazement. Although I will say this just to defend um, the era and the time I've actually seen the 1933 King Kong on a reasonably sized movie screen. It, it's it's still it's still pretty impressive to see on a screen. I mean, yes, it's 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 not a two hundred million dollar CGI thing. Hey, guess what? Here's a dirty little secret: it looks better. All right, now, so, I've not se- I've not seen it on a big screen, but but I will add I will add a little detail I like sure. was the Lionel train set. Like that was when I was a little kid. Uh, my grandpa had a Lionel train set, and it was and he worked for the railroad, and he had it set up in his basement mm-hmm. and it had a little electric box that you would, you know, turn a lever on and the train would go around. And I, I thought that was a nice touch at the time. Oh yeah. I mean, I have, I have, I used to have a, a pretty good friend, um, but a couple of us are friends with him and he had this amazing whole elaborate train set set up and I was astonished by it. And when I was a kid, I, I, I liked the idea of a train set. I did have a, I used to have a racing car set, um, and then apparently some horrible kid um, impersonated me and actually urinated all over it in his room to, and when he was throwing a tantrum once. I, it, he looked like me, but I'm telling you, he was not me. Um, wow, that was a TMI moment you weren't expecting on the STVD podcast. <laughs> So, um, you know what? I'm 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 gonna I'm gonna merge a couple things together just to make this a more cleaner um, follow through with, with with the episode here. Because later on, when he brings um, his child to school, and by the way, it's hysterical that Perry is driving the motorcycle everywhere and even taking the kid. <laughs> you know, and I keep thinking he's not wearing a helmet. Um, they didn't have helmets. Um, the, I only have one question. It's not really a question because I already know the answer. So Perry, the teacher, do you think? <laughs> oh yeah. Okay, I th- I thought so. I was going, are they going to go there? By the way, that aforementioned show I was talking about, I believe <laughs> that character I was referring to. Wait, did I ever say what I was talking about? I was talking about Mad Men, right? I did say yeah. Mad Men, didn't I? Okay, you didn't you? Didn't but I, I knew. Yeah. And oh I, my god! I, how did I? T- <laughs> you know what? I assumed that people were smart enough to know what I was talking about, but then again, if they haven't seen Mad Men, they don't know. I was talking about Mad Men, Don Draper, and his son Bobby. And by the way, there's also a point in the show <laughs> when Don is taking his kid to school, and he ends up having some little in- banter interactions and talking with the teacher who he ends up being with. So if they do that with Perry, we're like, okay, 
you know, <laughs> I'm starting to wonder. That's why I'm worried about how he might react to Della, because remember how how Don reacted to Sal when he, he didn't he didn't come through when he needed to. Anyhow, let me switch gears in a major way here to Daddy Lydell McCutcheon. First, we get a scene where we we see, you know what? This is a guy you don't. Well, we can curse on my podcast, right? This is a guy you don't fuck with. What he does to that guy, who basically was owed what he claims that he was owed like two hundred bucks by his his son, and we we get this whole you know scene between these two because just the fact that he came asking for the money in front of and in, in in front of all these people, whatever, already makes him someone that the father is not to, doesn't trust is going to keep his mouth closed about whatever secrets are there. It's what he does. It's brutal. It's pretty brutal. I mean, I mean guy, guy lives, but it's pretty brutal. The, the the raw meat appearance of the guy's face was disturbing. Um, but you see, I mean, this obviously is the harbinger of anybody that embarrasses him, doesn't show proper respect, right. is in for a bad time. I, I think, yeah, exactly. Because what they do with that scene is... Everything else about the father up until that point is our assumptions. We're we're assuming by the way he talks and the way he is, he's he's a heavy, he's strong. You know, he's I mean, as in terms of power, in terms of money, in terms of influence, in terms of what he's doing, whatever. But we actually haven't seen him do or say anything. You know that 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 make that guarantees he's a villain. It could it could have been red herrings the whole time, and then you see a scene like that. It's like oh no no no. He's not a good guy. <laughs> no, and I, th- I think what what they point out is earlier um, when the when they're at the I forget the name Hope Davis's character you, you mentioned it earlier, Camilla Nygaard. Camilla, yeah, Nygaard. She says Brooks was all surface. There was nothing underneath. Like a the father, French uh, realist painter. <laughs> yes, yes. The father is almost the opposite. Right. Like like he, there's nothing. At, you know, outstanding, charismatic, super outgoing about him on the outside, but it's all boiling underneath. Oh yeah, he's he's just he he's flinty that one. He's flinty. So let's continue with him because we get one of the real powerful scenes in the entire episode when when Perry is essentially brought to see Lydell and he's at the racetrack and you get this whole back and forth between them and he's because he's aware he's aware that Perry's digging into his son. He and he knows stuff about Perry. He knows specifically. He even knows about what happened to Emily Dodson, which it isn't until this point, and then later on. I don't know if I don't know if, if the other viewers felt the same way, but I'm gonna. That's the way I took it or interpreted it. I don't think we realized this wasn't common knowledge. I don't think because when we get that scene with Della a little bit later. I kind of assumed everybody knew that the woman had killed herself. And then we see that's not the case that, that, that people don't, he knows about it, but other people don't know. It wasn't published somehow. That's the thing I kind of find a little hard to believe, but I, I let it go because you know, whatever it's like, this wasn't publicized so that the other people involved with that case don't know. You know part of me wanted to go, Hey Del, why do you think he punched the, 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 the picture frame? <laughs> but, um, Getting back to the specific scene, 
it, what we were talking about before, what you were bringing up, uh, and the way Perry was acting with Camilla, and the, and we were talking about the way he is, and, and he's doing that here once again with this guy, except this guy is a little different <laughs> than Camilla, <laughs> maybe a little bit more threatening, eh, a little bit. I mean, he's he's no Noah Cross people. <laughs> Sorry, but that's what they're setting up. You know, he's, he's he's a Noah Cross character, and if you don't know what that is, that's the Chinatown reference, kids. Um, but it's still a really nicely tense scene. So I I really kind of it, I, I really I really enjoyed the scene because this I was really I was realizing okay, Holcomb's sort of an, an antagonist, but you know, but we see the we see that the more human the relatable side of him. This dude is really feels like the antagonist, and I don't know if we're gonna. Maybe we'll get a scene with him that maybe makes him seem a bit more. Um, well, I get to to reuse the phrase human, but I'm not sure that we will. But I, I really, I really like the scene between them. I, I haven't. I had to look up that actor. I hadn't really seen him before. He had that. He has that feeling of familiarity. Like, oh, he's he's like if Peter Coyote was like you know two feet shorter or something like that. He, he kind of looks like the Smoking Man from uh, yes, from William, X-Files. Yeah, William uh, William da- William Davis. Yeah, he does look like him. I looked him up, and I, I'm pretty sure I didn't. I don't remember looking at his bio, but I think just based on one other show he's been in. I'm going to bet, and if I'm wrong, I apologize, but I'm going to bet he's not American and that that's not his accent. I bet he's, I bet, I bet there's a brogue or, or, or a thing or something in there. Cause I don't, I bet he's not from America. I'm just, cause he's doing it. His voice is a, has a very flat quality to it, which is something a lot of, um, when Brits do American accents, they tend to flatten their voice a bit. You know, think about how Hugh Laurie would do house. And I, I was, I was listening to him. I was like, going, I wonder if he's, he's not from this country. So I'm, I'm going to bet he's not. I don't, I don't want to make tappity tap sounds on the, on the podcast as I often do when I look stuff up in IMDb. <laughs> but, uh, that, that's my guess until I, until I hear otherwise. No, but the but but I, I want to give one shout out real quick. Okay. There's that uh, amidst all the menace. There's that beautiful shot of the mountains and the racetrack and them down by the rail, and it was just absolutely gorgeous, gorgeous cinematography. Oh yeah, this is a damn pretty show. Um, so later on, you know, we can skip by the Drake stuff because we've already talked about that. We get that kind of one of the key scenes um, or major scenes and you know, maybe the major scene of the entire episode. It's when after that Perry finally shares the information, those postcards that he had received and that medical examiner's report with Della. And that's when we realize she didn't know that Emily Dodson had, hadn't passed away. We, cause I had no reason to know that. I, I just assumed she knew and that's why, why she knew how, how he's been acting and what he, and then you realize, oh, she didn't know. And now this is filling in all the blanks for her about the way he's been and why he wanted to move away from criminal, uh, law practice, or whatever. And, and, and almost everything she says is completely warranted because it does come down to why didn't you tell me? You know, all, all the should have, all the way he, he could have done something. And it's interesting because he's clearly beating himself up for what happened to Emily Dodson. But what it takes, again, I love when the dialogue and a conversation takes a turn that wasn't quite the way I was, I would have expected it to go. And I think we would normally expect it to go that he would be blaming himself 
and she would be at least to a certain extent absolving him of that blame. And that's not what they do. That is not what they do. He seems like he doesn't know that he could have done anything. He seems like he was almost paralyzed by it. And she points out all the things of ways he could have done something. So in a weird way, it's almost like making him feel worse. But it's because, but this is something that if he had only come to her in the first place, why would this not be something that you shared with the person? If there's one person who knows all about this case and all about the situation and whatever, it would have been her. So the fact that he continued to keep something like that private, and yes, he is a man who has his demons and, and his past that haunts him from, from the war and so on and so forth. But this is now, this is now. And in fact, he's still, acting that way i mean i love it because it's a flaw in his character and it's you know and and it's exposed um and and obviously these two are going to get over that they'll it'll be fine but i I felt it was a great dramatic scene for these two together um and it's such a it's such uh such a contrast from the more lighter comedic moment we had seen with them only you know several minutes earlier in the episode yeah, and it, it, I mean, Emily Dodson is the representative of all his clients going forward, quite honestly, that she says what Perry needs to be on the course that you could have saved. You, you might have been able to save her, but, you know, had you said something or had you tried and you didn't even try, you didn't even tell me. And what's he wanting to do with the brothers is he's wanting to save them. Um, so, I mean, I, I think, you know, the, her her view of it sobers him up in such a way that when she asks him, why didn't you do it? His only answer is, I don't know. Like he, he, he doesn't know right. why. I've also noticed if I'm not mistaken, that's not the first time his response to a question has been, I don't know. I think, yeah. I think that's happened in, in, in a few other times in the show, which I appreciate that. Cause I, I, again, it goes to what I said earlier about, he's a man of no pretense. He's not going to lie. He's not going to make up an excuse, whatever he's, he's going to say, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't, right. I, I don't, I, I don't, ha- I don't have a lie to tell you here because his, his lies are sins of omission. He doesn't lie. He just doesn't reveal. He doesn't tell. I'm, I'm again, I'm, I was just surprised by it that she didn't know to a certain extent because then the whole thing with the picture being up and him smashing it and you never liked the picture being up there, whatever. And I, can't, and I keep wanting to go back to, well, why do you think he didn't like it? I mean, I get wh- where she was thinking, but that shouldn't have inspired his reaction the way he's been. This make this makes a heck of a lot more sense if she just takes the time to think about it. But right. it's fine. I'm not again not knocking Della at all. I'm just thinking, you know, it's one of those things. Maybe maybe she could have put something together. But then again, if if that news was not made public for some for whatever reason, then why would she know that? Why you know because you know she it was in Lake Tahoe, which she you knows you know not nearby, obviously and such. Right. And, you know, other than the, the fact that we, we know that the, the gun was indeed rented by those Gallardo brothers. So, uh oh. Um, that's pretty much the end of the episode, actually. You know, we, yep. we got the rats. And the only other thing I have to say about the episode, I, I mean, I did like it. You know, I, I think, you know, I had a couple of really nice moments in it. You know, it was, you know, it was, it was kind of one of those connecting piece episodes, if nothing else. Um, my only negative thing I'm going to say about the episode, I was sad because we had no Strickland in this episode. I'd like to have at least one Strickland scene per episode, please. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get more. Yeah, well, the ads told us that, so I'm excited about that. All righty then. So, ooh, look at that. It's nice and brisk. If we're not too tired, and I don't think we are for a change, 
Let us now down. I'm going to take a sip of something while I say this. The, what I would like to call, it's like a cocaine-laced Red Bull adrenaline shot of a show that we want to chat about a bit here. And it's a show that's otherwise known as HBO's Succession. I'm going to take a sip of my drink. <laughs> so, I got to say that Succession, it goes up on the special shelf of series I caught onto well after the fact. It's one of the it's another one of those shows I was kicking myself for not being on board from the maiden voyage on. Much like God help me, Breaking Bad, which as I've mentioned um during the Breaking Bad podcasts, I had to binge the first two seasons in order to jump into season three. And I think I had to do something similar to that with succession <laughs> too, if I'm not mistaken. Um the only difference was um there wasn't really much danger of me being spoiled on Breaking Bad. There was a whole lot of danger of being spoiled on succession at the time. Yes. So if it if I have if it isn't clear from my tone already, I Love this series. To me, it is like arrested development with real drama and tension and a much sharper and certainly nastier wit than even arrested development could ever have had. And I also, I love it because it's a series that flies in the face of needing to be grounded by revolving around one or more likable characters that you root for. Uh, you know, if you think about it, Breaking Bad actually ultimately didn't do that. Neither does Succession. You've got several sharply defined characters. They all, every single one of them, they all have their own arcs that occasionally and sometimes collide with each other. But generally speaking, they're all often, it's less about them evolving and more about just either progression or regression, whatever their circumstances might be. And although they seemingly are maybe allied or aligned in different uh, combinations and stages throughout the past three seasons, you know, as we careened towards the end of season three, at that point, once again, as it had for the previous two seasons, the series boils down to what it's been about since the very first episode. This is a war between a father and his children. Sometimes it may seem it's the one child, like Ken, waging the fight on his own. But he's also the one with the most issues on his own as well. Or maybe it's Shiv working from the inside but getting squeezed out. Or maybe it's Roman, who in his own shit-talking but squirrely way of hoping to gain acceptance, but he ultimately, he's, he's given the same level of disrespect that he's gotten for years, which at times may be deserved or not. So you've got that's your setup for the series. And yes, you have all these other characters who all, you know, have their own little great storylines or whatever. I even left out one other sibling because he doesn't really, he doesn't play as much of a factor in this as the others because he's kind of more there for comic relief, it seems, than anything else. But it, but like I said, I, I didn't really want to get into the entire series, um, although I do want to take a pause and let you kind of weigh in a little bit about it as well before I hit the the major notes that were sounded um, towards the, the second half of um, All the Bells. Hey, I just made that up all just now. It's amazing. Uh, <laughs> which was the finale for season three. Uh, I... I think uh, I was an early adopter and had encouraged you to watch it. And when you finally did, you were like, oh, my God, this is amazing. Um, but this show probably has the best dialogue um, of any show on TV right now. Yeah, It's sharp. It's witty. And 
depending on the week, it's a comedy with drama, and the next week it's a drama with comedy. Uh, it, it really veers between those two worlds quite adeptly, um, and I and I have to. I have to believe that this probably has been more successful in adding um, supporting characters uh, that, that, that almost all the actors they brought in to be supporting characters, knock it out of the park as well and play really good roles. I mean, we come to love Jerry, uh, you know, the, the lawyer and her messes with Roman and such. Um, we have Tom, we have Greg, uh, um, and wherever this show goes, um, it's just a beautiful mess. And the the dialogue and the backstabbing, the changing alliances. I mean, it's almost like a show you guys watch that I don't. It, it's almost like Corporate Survivor, <laughs> yeah. if you will. Yeah, I'll go along with that. It, it's basically if... If they wrote Corporate Survivor and it was written by the guys who did Veep or something, because uh, it's got a very similar connection to that kind of a show. I think one of the people, the main guy behind this show, um, is his name? Is it like Jeffrey Armstrong or something? Jesse, Jesse, Jesse Armstrong. Armstrong. Um, he was behind things like you know the, the thick of it and and, and the things from England, which was also where uh, uh, Anatucci, however you pronounce his name, came from, who did Veep and whatever. So it's got that very sharp wit baked into it. It's, it's where it comes from, and that's all. And much like Veep, actually, also a show that's not afraid to okay. Maybe none of our characters are like traditionally likable, but you're going to laugh your ass off at them. And where this show really amazingly succeeds is, again, and it pro- thank, thank you, um, Succession, for proving my point that I've been making for years with people who I've argued with. It proves that I don't necessarily have to like a character to care about a character. And there are, there's, a, there's characters on this show that may not be ultimately all that likable, but then you find yourself caring about them and being even upset for them, not by them. Um, Ken, obviously, being the character I'm thinking of primarily for that. I mean, we could say that about Roman to a certain extent also. But Roman, for the most part, has just has always played it very funny. And then all of a sudden you see that side of humanity or you see, you know, that maybe there is something just a He's broken in a very different way than Ken is. Ken yeah. Ken. Ken, Ken Ken is more is 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 a more major breakage. <laughs> um, Roman is a more slightly disturbing breakage. <laughs> yeah, and what what ties it all together is the wonderfully devilish performance of Brian Cox. Well, yeah. you know, as Logan Roy, and um, I think I read somewhere, and correct me if I'm wrong, that that like many other shows, i.e., Breaking Bad, that he wasn't supposed to last more than the first season, but you know, they what they had was so dynamite they just couldn't get rid of him. I, I think you're right about that. I think he wasn't intended to remain on the show beyond the first season, especially getting someone like Brian Cox to commit to something more than one season was kind of seemed unlikely at the time. Um, but I think it's like, wait, and, that, and, that, and that's why there could be. And again, I'm not knocking the show at all. I, obviously, I'm very clear that I love the show. But if one was going to be even slightly negative about the show at all, one would say, you know, even with all its crazy storylines and where where they went, whatever, at the heart of it, it always seems to boil down to the same thing. You know, season after season for the first three, 
but it's but it's done in such a different let's rearrange the blocks in such a way where it doesn't seem like it's the same thing over and over that works really well which is also like an episode of survivor actually so with that said and we and this is about also getting ready for the season four premiere which will be on sunday uh, march 26th on hbo and hbo max and considering as i said earlier it was over 50 months ago, I mean, it's like in between old Soprano seasons back in the day, um, where we left off. So let's just remind folks where we did leave off. And I'm looking at those last, let's say, 15, 20 odd minutes of that finale, um, All the Bells Say, which was really kind of at first you have the showcase of the cleaving and bearing of souls. And it comes down to that scene between the three Roy siblings. Um, when we have a broken down Ken finally confessing to what happened, you know, back in the season one finale, that tragic accident that took the waiter's life and how the guilt and the belief of his own responsibility has really crushed him at this point. And he doesn't even get into the fact that, oh, by the way, Dad was totally using that on me as well, which is I'm 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 kind of wondering if there if that's ever even going to be mentioned in season four because that just takes the horror level of how really bad a guy Logan Roy can be at times, and I don't know if Shiv and Rome how they would react to that kind of news, but. We have that, and then we circle back to the overall, again, what I said before, the overall plot of the series is, you know, the the war between the father and the children, and in this point, they realize that Logan is about to sell off the family company, you know, Fox Corporate, I'm sorry, uh, Waystar, um, <laughs> to the company Gojo, <laughs> which I assume is kind of a wink at Google, quite frankly, and they realize that he makes that sale, that effectively torpedoes any of their chances of succession, you know, taking over for their father to run Waystar. And, you know, that's the whole title of the series and the theme and the main plot line. It's about succession. So, at, you know, after they have the scene with Kendall, he kind of, he finally does get his bearings back, um, along with having the extremely determined Shiv and the finally convinced to go against his dad, Roman. They think they have the means to veto such a sale due to a stipulation in Logan's original divorce settlement with his ex-wife and, you know, their mom. But what they don't realize is, and they don't realize it until that closing shot of the episode, quite frankly, is that Tom, and I I want to give the actor all the credit in the world because I, I don't know if he gets as much credit as he deserves. You know, I think he actually has nailed down a few awards. I just, I know I cannot pronounce his last name, so I'm not, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to embarrass myself. I didn't write it down phonetically ahead <laughs> of time. But the actor who plays Tom is fantastic. Because everyone focuses a lot on the likes of, of your Brian Coxes. And, you know, the, the Jeremy Strong who plays Kendall is like, you know, Mr. Method and all that kind of stuff. But it's the guy who plays Tom is so good. And oh, by the way, he's another one when you actually see him in interviews, like, wait, that's his voice? Yeah. Oh, my Lord. <laughs> yeah. Is it uh, Matthew McFadden? I think you're right. Am I thinking of what Tom's character's name is that I can't Tom pronounce? Tom Wamsgams? That's it. Oh, I'm so embarrassed. It's the character's last name I can't pronounce. But, but, but again, I mean, if you went to the random name generator and said, give me a tertiary character's name who is sort of a, a wimpy guy who's run over by his wife and, and sort of 
bows around to this family he's in. Tom Wamsgams is just oh, it's perfect. I mean, he's, he's 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 almost he's borderline cuckolded by her, you know, from, yes. from the night of their actual wedding on. But that, which is what makes this perfect is that he had received a call from Shiv earlier, essentially because because he was running the actual news operation at that point, so he can be on top of whatever the eventual news announcement was going to be from what they were going to pull off. But instead, he decides to pull off, apparently he decides to pull off the biggest backstab of the series by giving Logan a heads up that they're on the way to do what they're going to do, which, and I guess it's a really, 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 really long drive, because <laughs> Logan has time to quickly renegotiate that divorce settlement, which enables him to box off his children, who now, for all intents and purposes, Outside of, I would, I would assume, a share of whatever the sale profits are going to be, they will now have no say or seat at the table as far as Waystar is concerned. Um, it, it, that's clear. Even when he's he's initially saying otherwise, we know he's full of it. Because you have three – the one thing about those three children, and there are things they have in common, but they're three very different personalities. They're very big personalities, so they're, they're, they have their certain similarities. But they all three of them know he's lying. All three of them know like that that ain't true, and you know Roman wants to believe it's true. Shiv can't believe a damn thing that comes out of his mouth, and you know, and, and Ken's just barely holding on. But, but it's it's such a powerful end to that episode. And then when the realization of Tom, and you see Shiv's face because she's she she knows, and that's that's the closing shot of of him standing over her and, and like putting his hand on her, and it's like going wow. And when we think back to season one, and Tom seemed like he was there mainly functioning in, in that almost mostly comic relief, you know, the, the guy who's going to screw with Greg all the time scene. And you realize this dude just became one of the key, like the key component and character and all this. And I'm, and all you can think now is like, wait, are we going to get like a lot of scenes between him and Logan? Oh, I am all there for that. <laughs> Because there's a few things more cringeworthy than watching Tom try to suck up to Logan. So I'm really excited for that for season four. Yeah, Tom's sort of the – he's the pawn that made it across the board to become a queen. I mean, he, he really he really um, flew under the radar, did the things he was asked to do, was humiliated uh, and used in a lot of ways and bottled that up. And, I, and I'm really interested to see what they do with him and Greg because, right. you know, Greg uh, started as, you know, the, the doofus. And Greg has shown a little bit of facility for this stuff as well. Um, you know, bringing in his his grandpa, uh, copying the documents, doing things to, to try to position himself. So um, everybody in this family Everybody in this family has an, has a natural born ability at subterfuge in some matter or another. Well, the, the great thing with Greg is Greg, when the series starts, we kind of think, oh, Greg, you used the phrase proxy for us earlier for, when we were talking about Perry Mason. Greg's going to be our proxy. He's going to be the the wide eyed one who who isn't familiar with this world at all and you know so somewhat naive but he's going to be the he's like the good guy being tossed into you know this lion's den and now we've seen what's happened with him over the last three seasons and especially when you get to that this final episode about all the stuff he's trying to do with the contessa and the things that he and the way he's acting what he's saying and you know some of his act he make and every once in a while he makes a smart move like 
the, the photocopies of all those documents or whatever. And you realize, no, they've, they've affected, they've impacted Greg. I mean, he, he's kind of turned to the, I'd say, not to be cliche about it, but oh, I keep saying the phrase. Um, he's kind of turning to the dark side a little bit here, you know, especially you know, with Tom. I love, I think there's a phrase that Tom uses. Again, the writing. Mm, 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 mm. You know, he entices Greg by he he can he can be at the bottom of the top. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That is a great for because it's it, it's it's both nonsense and it makes perfect sense. Like, oh yeah, that makes for considering he's someone who's connected to this family. He's even by blood, yet he's for the most part he's been kind of a glorified you know office minion. And the fact that he might have his own, you know, office minion, maybe 20 of them, you know, he's like, he, he, you see the stars in his eyes and you realize just the way he was acting like what about his uh, grandfather and uh, all about the money stuff and the way he was acting like, oh no, he's, he is one of them. He's, he's a long way removed from the, the doofus who used to work in an amusement park, if I, if I remember yeah. correctly. Well, the, I mean, the, the family and the way they are is so corrupting that they've completely corrupted him. Not that it, now he was capable of being corrupted. He was not inviolable. So obviously uh, it was something in him, but he was not the person he is. But th- there is interesting thought to believe that, you know, if Tom could be uh, move up to like the kids, that Greg could be the new Tom. Yeah, that's very that's very plausible. Um, it's among many of the things I'm really intrigued about. Um, for this upcoming season, um, because they've kind of tossed out the playbook that they had been kind of going to for the last few seasons. And it's going to be curious to see how it plays out because right now, the way it's set up, the, the, the three, the three main siblings are all in lockstep, at least in opposition to Logan. I don't know if he's going to let, I don't get, one does not get the impression he's going to let any one of those three in. Ro- I, mean, I, agree. I, mean, and, I mean, the concern could be Roman, because Shiv certainly will not, and Ken, I don't think, certainly will not. But the thing I think that was the, uh, the, the, the sh- not, no pun intended, because we're talking about a different character, the Shiv that really got Roman was when he, got, when he tries to plead to Jerry. And then you realize, yeah, you had your, you had your weird, strange, beyond flirty, don't, you know, mentor slash milfy or Gilfy or whatever you want to call it relationship with Jerry. But then when it comes down to it, she's as cutthroat as anybody else. And it's about self. And I love in the same breath where she's talking about the, um, the, the stockholders, it's about self-preservation and it's about how does helping you help her right. at that point in time. There's no reason it would. Also, we still got the dude from Sledgehammer on the show. It's great. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, and I think the, the lesson is when you play that game long enough, you can't then suddenly expect somebody to do something good just for you uh, when you've never done anything good for anybody but yourself. Right. Like I said, it's it, it's such a great series. There are We've spoken enough here about how sharp – and smart the writing is. I love that the, I think almost every episode has at least one, if not, 
if not a, a bunch of scenes, there's at least a few moments that just kind of make my jaw just drop just a little bit because I was like, I can't believe they went there. It could, it, it could be, you know, Roman jerking off in the office. <laughs> One moment, I was like, wait, what, what, what just happened? Or, you know, or any number of, oh God, please stop talking. Kendall scenes <laughs> happened when he was going off the rails with his drug issues and whatever else. And all the way to the situation between Tom and Shiv and, and having that scene between them on their wedding night was just so oh and what i loved about a scene like that and and it's the kind of thing they do throughout the series again tom up until that point was a character that we thought was funny and kind but kind of a big a-hole whatever and it's not i believe it's not until that scene where we have any sense of compassion or understanding for him you realize oh i kind of feel for him right there he's because he's actually absolutely right and she's completely wrong. I mean, right. The, the, he really loves her, wants to marry her. And for her, it's a business transaction. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and I mean, even I, I think talking about crazy scenes, I mean, if we go back through the show, uh, I mean, early in this show, we see uh, Logan, you know, smack his, you know, his grandson who Ugh. they allude to as being on the spectrum, you know, yeah. like, and these people, some of them put up with it. The the people that don't are quickly pushed out of the inner circle. Um, and it, it's fascinating. It's fascinating that they deeply explore the damage to all these people. Um, but yet still position it in a way that it's that, that you, even if you're not rooting for anyone, you do want to know who wins. You want to see who wins and you want to see how they did it. Oh, it's fascinating. It's like the most gorgeous train wreck one can imagine, and you and you can't take your eyes off it. But it, but but I actually mean that in a good way, not in the, this was you know, in in the sense of the chaos and just it's just I am so excited that we're going to be talking about it this coming season. Um, again, that kicks off on Sundays. Um, there was some misinformation, thank because you can't trust anything you read on the internet apparently. So it looks to me. Here's a plan, really quickly. It looks to me, Succession is going to be on Sundays. You know, that, that's when it'll become available on HBO Max for those who watch on HBO Max, which is probably how I'm going to watch it, because I'm pretty sure they'll have little extras at the end, and I love that for a show like Succession, because uh, I want to hear the, the, the actors and the writers talk about their thinking, whatever, and we'll totally rip that off for whatever we talk about if we can. <laughs> <laughs> um, and Perry Mason will continue to air on Mondays. And what we'll do is when we do our recordings on uh, Thursdays, and unless there's a scheduling snafu or whatever, um, you know what? Succession is on Sunday. It's on first. So we'll probably be talking about Succession first. Also, because of the nature of the show, it may be a little bit more dense. So it's possible that we our, our level of conversation might tilt a bit more towards Succession. It'll depend from week to week, I'm sure. But we do plan to pack them both into one podcast. Um how long that podcast will be, we'll see. It might be two hours. Maybe it'll be an hour and a half. Maybe it'll be 15 hours. Who knows? It's not going to be 15 hours. Uh, <laughs> you know, but um, considering it'll be the premiere, I, I imagine we'll, we'll have a, a more than a bit to say for that one. And if you watch Succession, but don't watch Perry Mason um, and want to leave us feedback or questions or thoughts going into the new season, um, you know, please go to the Facebook page or uh, go to the Twitter, the 
Instagram. We're on all those things and, and reach out and give us feedback. I know it's one of the most popular shows on HBO. So if, if you're checking it out, but don't watch some of the other stuff we do, uh, we'd like to know your thoughts because it's a very engaging show and, and we'd like to talk about it and maybe read some of your comments if you make some or answer some of your questions. That's an excellent thought. And since you mentioned that, let me tell you where you can, where, exactly where you can go. Cause as I always like to say, if you enjoyed the podcast and if you've listened this far, God, you either hate, either hate yourself or you did. Um, yeah, find us on Facebook. It's the serious TV drama podcast page. You can like the page and you can find, you know what? You can find the TV show threads about things like succession, which I'll probably post sometime this weekend. So yeah, that's an ideal spot to drop some comments. Um, but if you want to do it elsewhere, like Brian was mentioning, you can, you can tweet at us. It's we're at STVD podcast. It's STVD as in serious TV drama podcast. Uh, we do have an Instagram page as well. It's just serious TV drama is one word. Um, every once in a blue moon, I actually remember to put something there. Um, as far as everything else, as far as just finding us as a podcast, obviously you already listened to us. So why, why do I have to tell you where to find us? But that's what you're supposed to do. I've, I've heard. Um, you can pretty much find us on most podcasting platforms, you know, whether it be Apple podcasts or Amazon and so on. Um, the two that I like to focus on are Apple podcasts or our hosting site, which is podbean.com. Just type in, you can type in serious TV drama podcast. Guess what? You know what? I discovered you can just type in STVD podcast and on both those places and you'll still find us. It's weird. Uh, but if you go to our host site, you can actually get access to all 372. Good Lord of our episodes. Um, don't ask me why the first three pages, you can't read the, the, the font anymore. I don't know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like I said, we will be back next week. So, and as I mentioned, buckle up because we're not just going to be covering chapter 12 of Perry Mason. We're also going to be capturing the season premiere of Succession season four. It will be its final season. They chose to go out that way, by the way, guys. Just say no. It's not HBO canceling them. This was their decision. This is what they wanted to do. Think about the people behind the show and their British sensibility. They like to keep their series. The fact that we even got 40 episodes or actually it's going to be more than that. It might be like 52 episodes. I forget how many episodes. Who cares? Not important. It's going to be a whole lot more episodes than British shows usually get. <laughs> so, right. Yay. It's not like 12. Yeah, it's not like, oh, Luther's come, come back for like two ep a two-episode season. What? Oh, meanwhile, there's a Luther movie out now. I still have, I keep forgetting to watch. I haven't posted a thread for it. I don't know if it's good, bad, whatever. Anyway, Brian, I want to thank you for helping to co-chair this jammy that we've done here. Well, I appreciate it. I really enjoy both these shows. Um, if you haven't watched Perry Mason, start at the beginning, give it a chance. It's great. It looks beautiful. Um, and the, the last time i'm going to say this this season uh but the economy of storytelling in this show is just amazing little details little things that push the push it forward um and man i am jacked to see succession see what's going on so we look forward to enjoying it with you everything he just said and so thank you brian to my i wish myself a happy birthday once again and to all of you out there depending whenever you're choosing to listen good morning good afternoon or good night. Thanks a lot, everybody. Good night.